0: Didn't have the mic on during the singing. I love to sing. I love to sing for the Lord, but I didn't turn my mic on. You're welcome. Yeah. So, Pastor wanted to send his apologies. He meant to be here. Uh, his dad was um, doing pretty good uh, today. He. Uh, this morning he was going to stay a couple more days, but his dad seemed to rally, rally back and do okay, so he decided to come back, but um, they got a much later start, so he's going to be in some time later tonight. So he just wanted me to um, give you his apologies for that. Um, tonight we're going to look at some scripture in the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to look at chapter 1, and uh, I'm going to read chapter 1 and a little bit into chapter 2. So, Nehemiah uh, is really a continuation of the book of Ezra. And so, there's some maybe 12 years in between, I believe it was. um, We believe Ezra wrote Nehemiah as well um, from the perspective of Nehemiah. And so, it's like in the second person, uh, in, you know, when. Israel sinned against the Lord, and they were, you know, following idols, and they were getting away from the commandments of God. He sent a judgment in the way of the Babylonians, and they destroyed the temple, and they devastated the city of Jerusalem, and they sent they sent the Israelites into exile. And so, Nehemiah now is the third kind of third and final piece of that, that restoration. There were some, some Jews remained, most got scattered. And when Ezra returned, he returned in uh, the role of a teacher. After the judgment, they tried to uh, band together. Now, Nehemiah is leading the last group back. They're gonna, he's going to oversee the rebuilding of the wall, the walls of Jerusalem. A lot of you know the story. The book of Nehemiah covers about a 14-year period uh, the majority of it takes place in one year, and then then you know there 's a small small piece that covers the rest of the time but um where it 's written in about four hundred and forty five b c so uh, Nehemiah is the last book chronologically of the Old Testament we see uh, four hundred and forty five years b c and you know, after Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah. There's a few hundred years where we don't really hear much of it, uh, much from the nation of Israel or much from God in the way of scriptures. Until then, of course, uh, Matthew, uh, the New Testament. His brother Dave pointed out Sunday, Matthew, the beginning of Matthew is really still the Old Testament because we can't switch testaments till we have the death of the testator. And you know, I listened to that and like. I almost didn't want to admit it because I didn't never realize that. Like, and I'm listening to them and it's like, oh yeah, duh, right? Like, how come I didn't already know that? But often that happens. Like, I know it happens for me, um, Things just go over my head, or don't occur to me, or whatever. So that was that was good. And um, so this week, when I was doing this, reading for this, like that was always with me. I kept that kept popping into my head, and I kept saying to myself, like, okay, Nehemiah is chronologically the last book of the Old Testament. Well, how do we how do we separate that? Well, of course, you know, the last full book, Matthew, part of it is in the Old Testament, as Brother Dave pointed out. But um, so in in roughly um, five eighty six B C. The, the Babylonians destroy the temple. They wipe out the city of Jerusalem. Now we, we see here Nehemiah is a cupbearer in King Artaxerxes' uh, court. And Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes. Xerxes is the king that um, made Esther his queen. Many of you know the story we went last year to see the, the play, Esther. But, um, so this is the sun, so this is some time later. And I'm going to, we'll start um, in verse 1. I'm just gonna, we're going to pray. go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord, I just thank you so much for your word and, Lord, for the truths that you reveal to us in it. Lord, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would, would guide my words and... Um, just control, lead, guide, and direct me, Lord, that um, I wouldn't say anything that isn't correct. Um, Lord, please uh, catch me if that's the case. I, I, I want to study to show myself approved, Lord, but to learn, to grow, to go, grow closer to you. And Lord, that we could all do that, that this, your word could be a blessing tonight to us. So thank you so much for it. I pray that you would open hearts and that we would be blessed from it. Thank you for it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm gonna read, I'm gonna start and I'm gonna read the entire chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Halkiah, and it came to pass in the month Chislev, in the twentieth year, I was in Sushan, the palace. A Chislev in the in the Hebrew calendar is late fall. Well equates to like November, December in our time. So that's gonna be a piece of the puzzle here. So we'll just mention that here. Um, that Hanani, one of my brethren came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah is a man of faith, he's a man of prayer, but it goes deeper than that, really. Nehemiah, is immersed in a culture of prayer and we see here he he says you know he prayed for days and we'll see as we read on that this goes on for some time nehemiah here is getting a burden his brother has returned and told him and picture nehemiah probably in his mind he's thinking of you know the stories that his ancestors told him of the splendor and the grandeur of the temple and um, the city when it was, you know, in its heyday, right? And so he's getting this report from these men, telling him, no, no, that's not the case. Um, now, some Jews have returned and have been there almost hundred years now, and still the walls aren't rebuilt, and it's it's not what he expected. So he's burdened. We're seeing the beginning of Nehemiah. He's getting a burden for this, this task of going forth and rebuilding the walls. And, and he said, "'I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night.'" Again, he's, he's immersed in that culture of fear. He's praying day and night. For the children of Israel thy servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, if ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you return unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee. Let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant. And to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fare thy name. And prosper. I pray thee, thy servant this day. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. So the, he's, he's the king's cupbearer, he says here. Now, When we think, well, when I think of that cupbearer, you know, I think like, kind of like the butler, right? Like, um, bring me my wine or, you know, make sure the meat's cooked to my liking. And certainly I think that is part of it, but it goes much deeper than that. The cupbearer is a great responsibility. He's responsible for the entire food chain before it reaches the king. Uh, In those days, imagine, you know, if somebody wanted to kill the king, they could poison the food. So he's tasting everything that comes into the palace. He's making sure that everything's just right. And so certainly he is kind of like a butler, but it goes much deeper than that. There's a great responsibility placed on Nehemiah in that position. And holding that position, he's in, it's a high position in in the palace. And certainly, this, the man who holds that position is going to be trusted by the king. So I think the king and, and he have a relationship. There's a relationship of trust both ways. And so in those days, if you anybody in the inner palace showed sadness in front of the king, that was a crime punishable by death. So here we have Nehemiah. He's he's got this burden to go back to Israel and to rebuild the walls. But he's praying and he, he's seeking God's will. I believe that he knows it's God's will for him to go, but he's asking God in prayer to show him the timing. Open the door, open the door. Because certainly this job of cupbearer isn't it's not like he has vacation time or you know, he can just call in sick for a week and a half like he, or whatever. He's got a big responsibility. And we see and we, in the start of chapter two, it came to pass in the month of Nisan. Now the month Nisan in the Jewish calendar is uh, springtime, like uh, March or April. So Nehemiah has been for four straight months, he's showing up Every single day to fulfill his responsibilities to the king. And he's praying day and night. And he's putting on his game face, so to speak. He's doing his job. At night he goes home and he prays. He goes to bed, says praise day and night. He comes back the next day and does, does the same thing all over again. He's, he has faith. He's a man of faith. He believes, he knows that God wants him to go and rebuild these walls. So he's waiting for this opening. And we're going to see now this is, this is actually like the, the text verse would be the next verse is coming up. It says, and it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not before time, I had not been before time sad in his presence. He's saying... I'm doing my job and I am not showing the king my burden. Um, So that's important because the next verse says, wherefore the king said unto me, why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou, thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then was I sore afraid. So he's afraid because he just, he's going to admit that he's guilty of this crime that's punishable by death. This crime of being sad in the presence of the king. Now he didn't, he, he said in the previous verse, I had never shown myself to be sad. And the very next thing that happens, the king says to him, why are you sad? So I, th- I think what's happened is Nehemiah is seeing that this is divinely shown to the king by God. He's opening that door. And Nehemiah's been praying for four months. God is opening the door for him to ask the king to go to go go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And at this moment, when it says he's sore afraid, it's a, it's a pivotal moment, right? So we hear, you know, we most of us probably have heard the, you know, somebody at one point say, um, fear is the lack of faith or fear shows a lack of faith, words to that effect. But that's, I don't, I don't necessarily know if that's true, is fear and faith live together, right? They live together in every person. We all, you know, if we're Christians, we're born again, we trust Christ, we wanna serve Christ, right? We need faith to do that. But at the same time, are, are we not afraid? Sometimes, well, Nehemiah was, he, he admitted he was. What about Joshua? Right, the Lord, in the beginning of Joshua, the Lord says several times, like, be, you know, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid. But why is an all-knowing God telling Joshua not to be afraid? Because he knows that he is. and And Joshua is a man of faith as well. And he's going to go, he's, chosen to take over after Moses dies and finish leading the Israelites into the promised land. And so he, he has to have faith to do that. But at the same time, he has fear because he's got to draw a sword. He's got to face the army of Israel's enemies. Uh, of course there's fear. But just like there's with Nehemiah, there's, there is fear. But this moment... This moment right here in Nehemiah's heart, he's, he's saying to himself, I know that I have to go. And God just opened this door because he allowed the king to see that I was sad, but I'd never let him know that I was. So that's, he's taking that as a sign, that's my open door. He could do two things. He could do what he does, which is in the next verse, he says, and I said unto the king, let the king live forever he starts kind of like a little Eddie, Eddie Haskell moment, right? Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers lieth in waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? So this is the moment where his faith and his fear collide, right? The, and we all will have those moments if we're trying to serve the Lord, right? And all through the Bible, there's examples of this. And, and like I point out, one big one with Joshua. But at the end of the day, what matters is what we choose to do, right? We can choose to allow our faith to lead us and guide us, or we can choose to allow our fear to lead us and guide us. If If Nehemiah had chosen to allow his fear to lead him, he probably would have said something like, oh, no, 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 you, you're mistaken. I'm not sad at all. And, you know, it's something I ate. It's indigestion or whatever. He would have made an excuse. He would excuse himself, but he doesn't do that. But that moment, that's like where the rubber meets the road because now he's called out by the king. So he says to him, he, he tells him his burden. And I won't read the rest of the chapter, but many of you know the story. The king allows him to go. He asks him, how long are you going to go for? And he rebuilds the walls kind of in record time, like, but I believe he's there 12 years, right? So if, and, and he ends up leaving, I believe his brother and another man um, to kind of run the city when he comes back, but he, he does eventually come back. But this moment of choosing faith over fear is something that we could all, we could all benefit from knowing that. Or in, in our effort to serve the Lord, right, we will have to make those choices. Um, you know, when I was a young man, I, right out of high school, I was 18 years old. I went to work for the cable company. And part of the job was we had to climb telephone poles. And you, when you, there's a training period, and they show you how to do it and all these techniques. And your you know, body is suspended by these two, little spikes and you strap them there on iron shanks to your legs and you climb and they tell you, you know, every pole, even though it looks straight, there's an upside and a downside, you know, always climb the upside, but often the strand would pull the pole toward the road. So you had to work usually on the downside. And they tell you, you know, there's techniques, never traverse horizontally, always traverse and ascend at the same time. So go up on the upside two thirds of the way. And in the last third, spiral around, always go up and end up where you want to be. And so when you, when you belt in to where you're working, you do what you got to do. When you're done, you unbelt that first step down is the scariest step. You're holding on to the steel strand like this and you, you place your you, your hook, your gaff into the pole, and you unweight your other one and you go down. When, when you do that, you have to take your hands off the steel strand and hold the pole. And for me and for many others, that's the most scariest part of the whole thing. But after you do it a thousand times, it's not a big deal. But when, you, when we do this, you know, when, in the training program, they show you videos and slideshows of people that have fallen and you know their arms are scuffed up and ripped apart, their chest is ripped apart, they're bleeding, they're on the ground, and they tell you, if you fall, and this is the reason why you don't, you're not belted in when you climb, if you fall, push away from the pole. Well, I promise you, when you start to fall, every natural instinct in your body is gonna tell you to grab the pole, but then you, you're falling one way or the other, and you have, you know, if you think to yourself, okay, well, I know I should be pushing away from the pole, you have like a split fraction of a second, not even a full second, your, your gravity takes over pretty quick. And so if you skid down the pole, you get pretty hurt. And if you push away and fall, you could still get hurt. So <clears throat> for seven years, I did this. And I would gaff out, I would, you know, I, an older guy taught me the very first time and he said, just the key is go very slow and set and keep the gaff sharp because the sharper they are, the less force you have to use to, to insert them into the pole. And the poles get old and they get rotted and they chip away. And so he said, always have one spike inserted in the pole. And so it's like, well, yeah, duh, that's a no brainer, right? But it's it's true because if you take that step and it gaffs out, you. You start to fall and you feel your heart go up into your into your mouth and you grab on and your other foot is still planted, so you're safe. And then you recover and then you, you take the, well, you see guys, I worked with a guy, maybe he had an abundance of confidence, right? And he ran up the pole, he would run up, run up and run down and and that's when you fall, right? But What's the difference between the guy that falls and gets all bloodied and skunned up and me? Am I smarter than him? Am I better in climbing than him? Do I have a better technique? No, the answer is fear, healthy fear. I have it, he didn't. Basically is what it comes down to. If we have a healthy fear, it can guide us. Again, Nehemiah, had fear because he knew that the king had the right to kill him, basically, if he wanted to. But he, he, you know, that fear kept him in check. It kept him biding his time, waiting for that opening. He didn't just rush in with an overabundance of confidence. And so the other side of the coin is, back to the pole equation, I've seen people, that first step, freeze. And if you freeze, then usually the first few times somebody's with you would climb up and look, you get their eye contact and you say, okay, you're fine, take a breath, look, take your right hand, lower it down, take your, unlift your dominant foot, put it down, and you walk them through it. And really all you're doing is you're assuaging their fear. And a couple times they had to get a bucket truck and extract people because they weren't going anywhere. And so that happens. But that white knuckle fear is not healthy fear. That's a driving fear. That's an unhealthy fear. That's the fear that cripples. And so we can do that in our Christian life if we're not careful. If we don't rely on our faith and, and sometimes it's almost more natural because fear, we can feel it and we can see it everywhere. Faith, we, we have faith, but it's in, you know, it's in something unseen. And so it's trust. And so it's, it's easy to get caught up in that, that, that gripping, controlling fear. But we see like with Nehemiah and again with Joshua, they made the right choice. They, they allowed themselves to be controlled by their faith, not their fear. That's the most important thing. When you look at today, you know, if you ask my wife, she'll tell you I'm the least political person in the world. But um, there's a virus that's been going around and we get afraid of it. I do. I I had COVID two weeks ago for the third time. And um, certainly... We want that a healthy fear, right? I, my fear kept me home. I stayed home because I didn't want to spread it. You're welcome. And if you have COVID and you have a fear and you don't want to spread it and you stay home, thank you. But that's a healthy fear. And people can make choices. We make individual choices every day. We can make a choice to get vaccinated or to not get vaccinated to wear a mask or two or three, or to not wear masks. Those are individual choices, right? That healthy fear can guide those choices. If somebody wears a mask every time they leave their house, that's driven, I I believe, and I want to believe that that's driven by a healthy fear. And so we respect that in, in each other those aren't choices that any of us make for anybody else, they're choices we make for ourselves. And so if you wanna be vaccinated and wanna wear masks, I love you, I wanna be your friend, I want you to come to my house for dinner. But you make that choice for yourself, not for me. And I want to believe, and I do believe that it's driven by a healthy fear. If on the other hand, you're afraid that you may catch this virus, and so because of that, you stay out of church for nine and a half months. Well, maybe you're frozen on top of the pole. Maybe that fear now has gone to, un- again, and that's not for me to judge, that's for each one of us to judge, but we each make those choices for ourselves and we each respect those choices in each other. Who, who would have judged Nehemiah if he chose not to do that? Well. God probably would have. And what would that have looked like? I, I don't know. But we probably never would have heard about it. There might have been uh, other people that God burdened to build the walls of Nehemiah that never made it into this book because of that, because they chose fear over faith. And in our walk to serve God, we look at, we want to have a, an eternal view of things, right? If God knows each and every one of us when we're going to give up these bodies, right? When we're going to move on into eternity. And it's recorded somewhere in his heart. And things that we do, like maybe have more fear than we should of certain things, and they're not going to change that date. You're not going to cheat God out of that time. and Really, you're only cheating yourself anyway. But we need to be more accepting of each other's right to make those choices for ourselves. It's easy, and I'm guilty of this, I try not to be, it's easy to to say, this is the way I think and anybody that thinks differently is wrong and so let the chips fall where they may and I can just go and tell everybody how wrong they are. But, but really, again, we each make those choices for ourselves. It's, individual liberties and freedoms in America, right? That's, that's why we live in America. You know, I, there's, another, there's a will tell one more short story and I'll probably close with that, but there, there's Ronald Reagan, during the Reagan administration, he, they had a world economic summit in Williamsburg, Virginia. And all the leaders all over the world were gonna be there and it was this pretty important to do. And Secretary James Baker comes to him the day before and he gives him a book. And he says, this is a briefing of everything we're going to cover in that summit. So you can be prepared. Well, the next day he comes in he asks Reagan, much to his dismay, he finds out Reagan never bothered to open the book. And he's, frankly, he asks him, why not? And Reagan looks at him and he says, well, Jim, the sound of music was on. But that's, it's, in a way, it seems ridiculous, but it's a choice, it's a priority. He made it a priority not to prepare himself. We make priorities in our lives, and like Nehemiah and like Jer- like Joshua, our priority should be as Christians should be to serve the Lord and and if we have that unhealthy level of fear, that could stop us from doing that. Well, Reagan made the choice not to be prepared, right? Not to, not to how he, that wasn't his priority. Well, there's mandates, you know, Bible mandates that we assemble. Well, are we, is that our priority? Well, clearly it was for everybody here tonight. And, and again, like Reagan, If, and if you're at home and you have 198 channels on your cable, the sound of music probably was on somewhere or a football game or whatever. There's a hundred reasons why you could choose to stay home. But individually in each one of our minds and hearts, we made a choice. We aligned our priorities. And if we align our priority towards an eternal view then we're going to choose to follow the mandates of God. We're going to choose to come, to assemble. We're going to choose to, to obey him, to live for him, to seek through prayer like Nehemiah did, his will for our life and his intervention in our life. And we need to, we need to immerse ourselves in that culture of fear. And I'm, I'm guilty of it too, We. We came from Virginia at 650 miles. Well, we were all packed up and the car was running. And We sat there at the end of the driveway for four minutes and we prayed for safety. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we knew we were coming for two months. Why did we wait till we were in the car to pray for safety? Right. That's exactly opposite of what Nehemiah is doing here. And, and, and often that's why if you look, there's commentary and there's books written about leadership And leadership qualities and abilities, often they will use Nehemiah as an example. And largely it's because of the way he lived in that culture of prayer. And the value of that prayer and the value of prayer for us, one of the main values of prayer is to wait, to be patient and to wait for the answer and not to stream forth in our own you know our, our own minds and our own understanding of things, and so Nehemiah is a great example of that. And, and again, so is Joshua. And so, as we look at that, we see that these men made it their priority to to let their faith control them. And each one of us should do the same thing. We should we should make our faith our priority, not our fear. And If the two collide like they do here with Nehemiah, choose faith. Because God promises us he won't leave us or forsake us. And so if we we do what he wants us to do, that's always the safest place to be. That's always the best place to be. And these superficial things in the world that we fear, they can't kill us. They can kill our bodies, but they can't kill our spirit. Right? They and, and if you if you have that unhealthy fear and you live under a rock, how do you serve the Lord in that? How do you how do you do that? How do you do both of those things together? And so uh, I just would pray that we would take stock of that and that we would you know choose those priorities for our own lives individually to live for the Lord, to serve the Lord, to obey the Lord, and to. Maybe have fear, a little healthy fear, because, uh, again, like the saying goes, you know, fear is the absence of faith. That's not true. Fear, it's not fear or faith. It's always fear and faith. They live together. They dwell in our hearts together. They're not separated oftentimes. So uh, it's important to know that and to see that. And, and, uh, and hopefully we'll make the right decisions in that. Well, that's all I have. Thank you. Lord, in prayer, Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these examples, Lord, that we see in your word, that, Lord, we we look to to teach us and to guide us, and, Lord, how we should live, how we should act, and how we should serve you, Lord. Lord, it's my desire to serve you as best I can, however you would have me do that. I pray, Lord, that you would keep my fear at a manageable level, that... Lord, you would allow me not to let that fear to run away and to get the best of me and to control me and to keep me from your service. Lord, I thank you for that. And I thank you for all you do. I thank you for each one of these people who set their priority to be here tonight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.